Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 31, I interview Joe Fraser, the Managing Director and Digital Lead of Halftone a digital media agency that combines marketing and technology to deliver compelling and simple business solutions. We discuss why he went from thinking he would be an engineer to stumbling into the world of programmatic advertising in a media agency, how an opportunity came up to start his own digital media agency when he found himself pitching against the four biggest media agencies in Australia and won the account which launched their business. We discuss why their seventh hire was a talent development manager, why they are hard on the work but soft on the people, and why he hates the word entrepreneur. How the business grew 683% last financial year to do over $5.6 million in annual revenue. If you are a brand interested in technology consulting, in-house digital media, and marketing strategy, check out halfdome.com.au. That's H-A-L-F-D-O-M-E dot com dot A-U. So I'm here with Joe Fraser, the Managing Director and Digital Lead at Half Dome. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thanks for having me, Derek. That's all right. So can you tell us what were you doing before you started Half Dome? What did you study? What type of companies did you work in? What roles? Uh, so uh, I, I actually only had one job, to be honest, before I started Halftime, one professional job. I'm not going to count my times at sort of Village Cinemas Jam Factory, um, <laughs> as good as they were. But yeah, look, I, I studied commerce and engineering, so mm-hmm. a double degree. I, I finished the commerce side and I think the engineering side, um, I might have a year left until all of the credits that I've accrued um, fade away into nothingness. Uh but studied that, went traveling after I finished the commerce part of my degree. Um, mm-hmm. And I went traveling with one of my good mates, Will, um, and my brother, Tom, who fast forward five or six years, we actually ended up starting Half Dome together. Um, but we went traveling, lived out the back of a van um, for about eight or nine weeks, uh, sort of traveling the West Coast of America, um, mm-hmm. which was good fun. Came back and sort of fell into a role. Um, at a company called Amnet, um, which, uh, to be honest, I, I didn't know what I was getting into. It was just the first job that popped up. Um, and it's it was a company that was a company of five that was working in a field of marketing called programmatic advertising that at the time was um, right at the front end of what became a pretty big boom. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there was five people at Amnet in Melbourne when I kicked off. I might have been the sixth person. Um, and in my time there, which was about four years, we grew from, you know, those five people in Melbourne and one or two in Sydney to, you know, 40 or 50 in both offices, um, so 80 or 90 nationally. Uh, so really was, was super lucky in terms of um, coming out of uni without a great deal of sort of direction or, or knowing exactly what I wanted to do. I wasn't, you know, particularly passionate about any one field um, and just sort of, Landed on my feet at Amnet, um, which is a cool company, to be honest, and the people that worked at Amnet were awesome. Um, you know, the first three or four years, apart from meeting my my wife whilst working there, um, which is obviously a bit of a positive, uh, it was just one of those sort of rare environments that um, I think I'll look back on 
in a few years and, and you know, those first two years, I'd say, at Mnet, we just had such a great team. We got on, we were kind of ended up being best mates. We worked ludicrous hours, but we kind of loved it. Um, and the quality of work we were doing was great. We, again, without kind of going too, too much into detail into what programmatic is, it was really a, you know, highly profitable part of the media industry at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were you know, untouchable within the walls of, of the Dental Aegis Network. We were making so much money for the group. Um, we were doing really good work. Um, we're almost like the cowboys of, of, of the sort of media industry going through this growth period. Um, so it was great, to be honest. Um, in my time at Mnet, I kind of started at the bottom, sort of just running campaigns. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, it's within the media industry, so you get sort of advertising campaigns that you're running for clients. Um, and probably over the first two years, that was primarily my job. So just sort of working up, um, you know, it was, it was an interesting period in the industry because, um, there was so much new stuff coming out and so much new stuff to do. Um, you know, as simple as programmatic initially started with just display advertising on the web and it became, you know, display video, you know, accessing YouTube, social platforms, everything. So there's so much change and you're just doing new things every day. Um, and so after that two-year period, I, pro- I moved into more of a product role. Um, so my job kind of pivoted a little bit to instead of working on the day-to-day campaigns, um, working with a small group of two or three people um, to, I suppose, productize different ad capabilities we had to sell into the clients um, that the group that we worked for, um, I suppose, represented. Um, which is fun. It definitely changed my role massively, changed the way I had to think, got me exposed to a lot of new things um, around, you know, especially productizing things and selling things into clients, mm-hmm. creating a value prop, um, which is great. Uh, and then, yeah, look. And, and just in- if we re- go back a couple of years, so when you were finishing high school, you, you got into a applied, I imagine, and got into a commerce engineering double degree. What did you think you would be doing sort of at the end of that? Like, did you want to be an engineer? Were you majoring in finance, marketing, or, or did you not really have a direction at that point? Uh, look, I got into commerce and engineering. I was, I was, you know, physics was a strong suit of mine going through school. Maths was pretty bit of a strong suit. So engineering commerce felt like the right fit. Um, I picked marketing because it was the easiest of the commerce <laughs> disciplines, least contact hours at uni. Um, and I majored in, or I got to the point where I was majoring in um, structural engineering and, you know, I'd picked that again because it had the least contact hours of all of the engineering disciplines. Um, and was that because, you know, you had an active social life or were you pursuing side businesses, other hobbies at the time? Were you burnt out from high school or just kind of wanted to keep your options open? Or No, nah, look, it was it was uni probably and, and that style of learning and even, to be honest, going through school, that style of structured learning probably wasn't um, what really resonated with me. Um you know, to this day, I'm probably a bit of a nightmare to work with in a small team because the way that I go about things is, um, you know, terribly unstructured. So, um, I think that, that, yeah, sorry, I I appreciate more of a social life. (laughs) Okay. And then uh, when you say unstructured, just to clarify there, do you mean you sort of, you see something you're interested in and you just sort of dig deeper and deeper and deeper and go into that versus being told here's week one of the course here's week two and that 
that was that clash between self-discovery versus a sort of top-down structure? Yeah, a little bit. I'd say that it's partly to do with that, partly to do with the way that just, I don't know, the way I approach tasks, the way I approach problems is probably, um, it's really difficult to communicate, um, which again is is why I pity the people who have to work with me on a day-to-day basis. Um because, you know, I'll say this is the end point I got to, but explaining how I got there um, is, is really difficult. It's like it's almost sort of like 40% because I know what I'm doing, 60% gut, if that makes mm. sense. Um, anyway, that, that was probably what I think made uni, um, you know, less appealing to me. Um, and, and, I mean, was there a point where you thought, I'm going to be a structural engineer or, or what point did you cut that engineering side off of, of the degree and focus more towards the business and marketing? Um, yeah, look, I mean, early days I definitely thought that engineering was going to be where I landed um, in, in, in that degree. Uh, commerce obviously is a broad even when you're majoring, it's a pretty broad concept, um, mm. whereas engineering kind of have a, has a really clear career path, I suppose, at the end of it. Um, so I definitely went into it feeling like engineering was the path I would take. Um, but then, look, I kind of just followed, you know, took the next step in front of me at all times, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of what led me towards, one, focusing on my commerce degree. So I finished that first. Um and then two, sort of once I'd finished that, sort of got me into the workforce. Um, and getting into the workforce was something that um, I think was really good for me. I, I, I like I've, I've enjoyed the concept of work and the you know structure that it gives you just from a routine standpoint. Um, so yeah. And I mean, were you always interested in marketing? Like you sort of mentioned, a bit of it was sort of a lower contact hours, but was it? something you were experimenting with little side businesses, online businesses, online advertising when you were at uni, before uni, or was it only really once you started your, your first proper job that you got into that world? Yeah, look, I'd say, look, yeah, a passing interest, but by no means a passion. Um, mm. Definitely wasn't playing around with side businesses or, you know, looking to get into digital marketing from a young age. Um, you know, had, had an interest in it, primarily probably around the... Um, psychology of it and the um you know perceived and probably to this day it's still fine if i say the perceived ludicrousness of the advertising industry (laughs) um you know it's i actually i was talking to a bloke the other day and he said that if you took 10 percent of the money spent in advertising and you put it into a market that was like traded for traded like oil or stocks Mm. it'd be the biggest market in the world already 10 percent of it so that's how Mm. much people spend in advertising and it's sort of you know still you know, as much an art as it is a science. Um, so it's a bloody interesting space in that sense because not all the answers are out there yet. Um, but, yeah, look, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I'd be lying if I said that from a young age this was something that, you know, I was um, instantly drawn to. Hmm. And even your first role, I mean, were you applying kind of everywhere? Like a lot of grads, you're just trying to, hoping to get something or were you targeting big firms? Were you targeting agency side? client side were you targeting non-marketing roles what were you sort of looking for when you when that role came up on your radar uh yeah definitely i mean like anyone i was trying to ensure that i'd applied at enough places to um you know you're just sending out applications left right and center i suppose um quantity over quality i think is the mantra when you're coming out of uni but um yeah look i 
I think I wanted to work in agency land, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's a really interesting space, advertising specifically. I think because even through uni, you don't really you don't really study advertising. Um, you study marketing, and advertising might be a single unit within it, or mm. media might be a single unit within it. So it's a little bit of an unknown and. You know, at the time, there's a little bit more, op- a few more options now. But at the time, the ad industry was almost like, like you couldn't even really study it at uni. Mm. You studied marketing, which got you ready for client side roles. Um, but yeah, like I, I, to be honest, I didn't even know what media, the media industry looked like um, until probably I got out of uni um, and was talking to you know, friends and, and parents of friends who were, you know, either in the industry or, or knew about the industry. Um, and, yeah, probably just got a little bit more insight then. And from what everyone had said, and to be honest, it's what I'd say as well, is starting in an ad agency is an awesome place to start, especially a big one because you get mm. exposed to every touch point of the industry instead of being in a specialist company um, who just works in a silo. Mm. Um that being said, uh, yeah, I was sending resumes out like you would not believe. Um, <laughs> and, and so you land a grad job. It's a small company, but, you know, when you're a grad, I guess you take what you can get. But then you, find, you sort of stumble upon it, but it, it actually obviously grows incredibly fast. There's a lot of opportunity. You progress, to, like you said, the product side. And then you're there nearly half a decade. And at what point did you decide you wanted to start your own business? Was there a particular thing which sort of triggered that decision? Was it something that had been bubbling and burning for a long time? Did someone nudge you in that direction? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was equal parts opportunistic as it was planned, um, in the sense that we've been lucky that we haven't had to take too many radical risks in starting the business and in growing the business, um, like a lot of other um, business owners, I think, would have had to. Um, but. I think it kind of spawned from there's three founders um, mm-hmm. and each of us kind of bring a different skill set to this business and we each bring a really different viewpoint to the business um, and we're all best mates. So we would often sit down and kind of chew the fat on our perspective in terms of um, what the gaps were in the industry and where, where the opportunities were. Um, and so I think that we'd probably spent two to three years talking about the concept of a half dome albeit in a really non-formed way. Um, and then an opportunity popped up that allowed us to, I suppose, start it, as, as I said, in a really low-risk way. Um, and we kind of jumped at it with both hands and, and kind of from there launched. And what was that opportunity? Was that a client who was asking you to do work? Was that um, some other specific thing that gave you the confidence? Yeah, so it was it was an it was a opportunity. I mean... At our genesis and, and kind of still to this day, probably the easiest way to understand what we do is paid digital media mm-hmm. um, and paid digital advertising. Um, and so we got an opportunity really early on where um, someone approached us just for advice because um, mm-hmm. they knew that we worked um, in sort of digital media at that time um, for advice on how they could, I suppose, pivot their business to having better digital capabilities. At the time, it was a media agency that was quite traditionally focused, Mm -hmm. so really good at, um, you know, some of the older media channels and more established media channels like TV, radio, out-of-home buying. Um, But they had their clients who were probably starting to ask more questions about digital advertising and whether there was a need for them to start exploring it. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so what it meant was, you know, we'd been approached to just provide advice on what building a function like that out would look like. Um, and basically, we just jumped on that opportunity and said, we'll do it for you. Um, so out of hours and on weekends and after work, um, you know, we were, we were just sort of working away to help this other business kind of an extension of this other business. We set it up as its own business entity so that we could grow it individually. Mm -hmm. um, but we kind of just set up, I suppose, all the structures that we needed, all the accounts we needed, all of the, um, you know, back-end things you need to do when you start a business uh, so that we could start servicing them. And, and then we sort of did that after hours for a while. Um, and as that kind of grew and as we started sort of building that, um, I suppose, capability out, uh, sort of one by one, each of the founders kind of managed to leave their, their current job and jump in. So over the course of maybe five months, I think we sort of one by one managed to transition into roles at halftime, um, which is good. Um, yeah, so, so within five months, you had a bit of momentum. I imagine obviously the revenue was enough that you sort of was at the point where then you said, let's quit our jobs, let's dive all in, or you'd built up another client or two sort of from there. Yeah, it was interesting. We went through a period um, probably about three months in when only one of us was sort of full-time working in the business mm -hmm. um, where we got an opportunity to pitch for um, what is now still a client, Morris Blackburn Lawyers, mm -hmm. um, which was an interesting one. We kind of got this opportunity to pitch and we kind of, I mean, even looking back, we had no right to be on that pitch list. It was a pitch <laughs> list that involved, you know, CARA, OMD, um, probably like the four biggest media agencies in Australia and then, um, you know, us in partnership with that original media agency, media agency, Contri Media, we'd kind of been asked to pitch as a fifth alternative. Mm. Um, and we sat down and kind of really seriously considered whether or not it was going to be worth it. Um, pitching, again, I don't know how exposed you are to the media industry and, and the concept of pitching, but it's, you know, equally a gift as it is a curse because you put in you know, hundreds of hours um, and if you fail, it's all unpaid. Mm. <laughs> um, so especially considering we kind of had one full-time worker or, or sorry, two people working at full-time jobs, one person working at half-time and we we're like, yeah, let's do it when these bigger agencies might have, you know, six or seven people working around the clock for a couple of weeks. Um, you know, we really considered whether or not it was the right option for us at the time to pitch. And whether um, you guys were like, I imagine, worried that you were like a token sort of fifth player on the list just to kind of fill up a quote or a small business, you know, quota or something or just some, you know. 100%. And, and the way that we've often talked about pitches is what is our chance of winning and mm. how much effort do we need to put into it? Um, and, you know, when we were talking about our chance of winning, it was low single-digit percent. Mm. Um, but equally, we were like, look, if we don't give it a crack, we'll definitely look back and regret it. Mm. Um, and in doing this pitch, we'll be forced to generate a lot of content and original thinking for the business anyway, so it should help our business be in a better position after it, even if we don't get paid. Um, so we went for it. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was a fun pitch process. I, I distinctly remember like two-stage pitch process. Second stage was on a Monday mm -hmm. um, and I'd flown up to Port Douglas for a friend's wedding mm -hmm. over the weekend and a cyclone hit. Um, so the wedding was flooded <laughs> and the road between Port Douglas and Cairns actually had these landslides. Mm -hmm. um, so we were just freaking out because I was going to miss the pitch. Um, anyway, I managed to 
take some back roads back to Cairns Airport and get on like the one flight for the day <laughs> back to Melbourne. Um, but yeah, look, one Morris Blackburn, that was, you know, an, an opportunity and, and, and something that gave us the ability for the three of us to work full-time in the business comfortably um, and service and what was that your client. Sort of, what was your angle on that? Because again, I imagine in one way you're unique because you've got these four major players, you're a very small player. Um, but law firms aren't known always for being cutting edge and risk-taking. They're often known to be very conservative and sort of status quo and risk-averse. So did you play on that to an advantage? Did you just care a lot more than the other big agencies where they're just going through the motions, they're on a salary? You're trying to, you know, look at this as sort of this could be a whole new life direction for you guys. Was it just a mix of that with youthful, you know, sort of ignorance? What kind of was your strategy and then what was the reality and why do you think that kind of, landed with them yeah it's a good question we i mean at our core we're a service-based business we help we provide a service in sort of helping people buy media better Mm -hmm. um and being a service-based business we kind of sold ourselves in i think especially at that original pitch it was really selling in the people working on your account which was um you know really high quality individuals that other agencies might roll out the top top of the pops um, to come in and pitch. But, mm. you know, once you get into working with these agencies, you know, you're getting me one year out of uni working on your account. <laughs> um, you know, a guy who doesn't know what he wants to do, who's just mm. kind of fallen into it, who's who's actually going to be running the campaigns. So we definitely played that angle a lot in terms of selling in our expertise, selling in the fact that we will be working on your account in a day-to-day capacity. We obviously care more um, because... If this doesn't work and if we stuff up for you, our business will shut and we're going to have to go find jobs again. Mm. Um, so we were really honest with them on t- in terms of where we're at as a company. Um, and then we went in and, to be honest, Will, who um, leads more of our strategy team, um, he just blew the lights out in terms of putting putting forward a really strong strategy for Morris Blackburn as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been a strategy that, you know, we've stayed with um, to this day. It's kind of lasted the test of time, I suppose. Yeah, and so you've got an early foundational client that, like you said, kind of filled up your evenings and weekends. You've got a, your first proper corporate client, you know, with some uh, lucky timing on airplanes and stuff like that. And then what, what's the first 12 months like? Once you're all in, you've got your client, you're like, hey, this is serious. It's not just a hobby or, a you know, side income, freelancing. Um, what were the good and bad and the ups and downs like in that sort of first 12 months of really being in the business? Yeah, cool. So we first six months was just the three of us. Um, so three founders we were working out of uh, what can only be called a shoebox office in Collingwood. Um, if one person had to go to the toilet, all three had to get up. Um, so, look, it was definitely a pressure cooker environment. There was a lot of sort of heat on. We were working long hours, definitely. Um, and we kind of just had to do all the stuff that you need as a media agency that we would definitely we would take for granted at our previous jobs. Just like things as simple as the client asks a really basic question. At other jobs, you might have like just a bank of resources to lean mm. on, um, and just having to kind of build all that from the ground up was just so time consuming. Um, so there was a lot of pressure. There was there was. Um, Look, it was definitely a benefit that the three of us were best mates. Um, living in the back of a van together for two months, you, like it, it doesn't get worse than that. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, the, the, the bright side is that we, you know, we never really have, and to this day, have really had disagreements that have been 
insurmountable. Um, we challenge each other respectfully and we kind of move forward with decisions, which is nice. Um, I suppose that, yeah, so that first six months, which is the three of us working together, it was, it was good vibes. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but, yeah, definitely just kind of scrapping our way through. Uh, and then when it kind of became a little bit more real was when we sort of bought on our first employee um, and first two employees. We started pretty much on the same day. Um, they were both people that we'd previously worked with, which again was good. They were both people that we were pretty good friends with, which again, um, you know, some people say don't work with your friends, don't employ your friends. <laughs> I can see why, but it's been sort of successful for us, I suppose, um, just in knowing that we could work really well together. Hmm. Um, and yeah, look, when we had employees, again, it was a shift in what the business was. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. It was definitely a shift in how we had to act. Probably one of the weirdest things was bringing on two peers who were mm -hmm. peers in previous lives and then kind of having to manage them. Um, and it probably took 12 months to establish, you know, a relationship with them that better reflected the new relationship. Um, but, you know, we've just been lucky that they've been two unbelievable people who hopefully will stay with us for a long, long period. Um, and what was the biggest learning curve on that? Like, so obviously, there's a change in relationship. Was it, you know, if they ask, like, for example, when you're negotiating pay, it's like, you know, you're the one in charge, so you can't sort of empathize with them too much, but then also you're a mate, or, or was it that you sort of saying, hey, no, don't focus on this, focus on that? And they're sort of, they're not used to you directing their work. Was it you, if you had to overrule them on something, or was it just the, the dynamic, or maybe they treated you differently? A little bit um, like you said it worked well but just I mean what was sort of the biggest shift or was there a, a bit of a light bulb where you're kind of like, oh we're not you know colleagues and sort of seatmates anymore we're, we're, we're sort of you know owners and they're, they're working you know with us but but essentially you know as staff not colleagues yeah 100% I think I mean it, it's it's not the employer right now it's not them it's not mm -hmm. the way they've acted at all it's the way that sort of us, us like we have acted um, and it's probably just been a 12-month period coming to terms with being their manager mm -hmm. um, and being able to, uh, like, they've been so receptive to every discussion that you have with them. Um, it was just a bit awkward having that discussion with them, so we often avoided it, all three of us. Mm. Um, but once we kind of, you know, did it once, did it twice, did it three times, it's become a lot more normal. And, um, yeah, we've sort of landed in a position now where um, we can be friends, but we can also have a professional relationship that kind of reflects what we're doing, um, you know, in the business as well. Yeah. And so, obviously, you've been very successful. Your company grew nearly 700% last financial year, um, growing revenues up over $5.5 million, making one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. Um, like I said, sort of started off well, built momentum, you had some staff, but what drove that sort of super rapid growth and what was it like in that sort of 12 months of very rapid growth, both, again, the good and the bad? Yeah, definitely. In terms of the drivers of growth, um, you know, to date, we've really only relied on personal relationships in terms of new clients um, to get us in the door. And then from there, we've kind of been confident enough in our product, um, which again, it's a service-based product, I suppose, but um, been confident enough in that to, once we get in the door, you know, do a good job. And we've been pretty successful in terms of converting the few leads that we've had um, into clients that we've got. Um, so probably like, the, I mean, the biggest driver of the growth 100% was bringing on the good guys um, mm -hmm. as, as, as a client. They're a massive client for us and um, it's a really similar story to the first one, to be honest. We, we got offered to be on this pitch list against all these people that we thought we'd never be able to beat. We gave ourselves low single digits percentage in terms of our probability of winning it. 
convinced ourselves we may as well do it because it will make us a better business. Um, and then, yeah, look, we're lucky enough to win it. Um, lucky enough that both Morris Blackman and the good guys were willing to take a risk on, you know, a pretty new agency structure for them. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the good guys, what they did for us was stimulate, you know, the hiring of probably six or seven people over the course of a four-week period. Um, so going from five people two employees who are close friends to um, sort of six or seven completely new people in disciplines that we weren't necessarily um, as confident in talking about uh, was probably the toughest period we've been through as a business. Um, you know, having structures in place, processes in place, onboarding people correctly, managing people correctly. Um, you know, we were so out of our depth for six, eight, 12 weeks there. Um, but looking back, we made probably one of the smartest decisions we've made as a business and we brought on um, a, a girl called Lisa Lee who is still with us in, in, in a role of sort of head of people and culture mm-hmm. and she'd had a great deal of experience in the past um, working in more of like an operations role at bigger agencies and had been studying sort of whilst she was on mat leave to do a lot more um talent development and sort of people development style roles um, and the impact that she's had on our business and the structure and the direction that she um, kind of pushed us towards um, but also the way that she's you know been able to create a really strong foundation as a business for really open communication for really open feedback um, you know it was, it was definitely one of the smartest decisions we've made um, and what was the biggest gap you, you mentioned? Was it going from hiring friends to hiring strangers? Was it, again, having like team leaders and, and you know, a layer sort of between you? Was it, again, having people doing work where you weren't the expert, like you said, sort of augmenting your skills? What was or all of the above? What was sort of that biggest change? Once you get the client, you got the success, you got the, you know, the contract and you got the, the, the scary times of having to deliver on that um, and hire for it and, and deliver it. Um, what, but what was sort of the biggest gap, like that six to eight-week real struggle point? What sort yeah, of leaked question. out in your memory? To be honest, at the time we had a, a group of five five people in a management team um, mm-hmm. or six sort of, but one of them was in the new bunch. Um, and the five of us that had worked at Afton Pro previously, none of us had management experience. Like mm. We'd managed teams of one or two people. Um mm but we're really kind of specialists in our role who found ourselves in these people management positions just through, um, you know, virtue of the situation we were thrown into. And so none of us knew what we were doing. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's unbelievable that we've still got, um, you know, I think three or four of those initial six people that we hired on board because looking back, the way we onboarded them, the way we initially managed them, the direction and, you know, the expectations that we set or didn't set early on, um, you know, they've done an unbelievable job of weathering that and kind of dealing with us while we've sorted all of it out. Um, and now we feel like we're in a, you know, much, much, much stronger position from a people standpoint. Um, but again, you know, the person credited with a lot of that and guiding us in the right direction of what we actually needed, um, what we needed to do, how we needed to do it was definitely Lisa. Um, hmm. So, yeah, it was, it was such a lucky and, um, you know, I'm so happy that we came to the decision <laughs> so early on to hire someone into like a talent development role hmm. as, as like our seventh hire, eighth hire. Hmm. Um, 
because you know it was very easy to say let's cut costs and focus yeah, and on there's people. There's companies you know ten times the size that don't have anyone in that seat, right? Yeah. So it it is a non-standard move to bring someone in but like I said it's paid off well which is excellent and and, and so your role previously again when you're an employee you're in a fast growth company going from five to a hundred staff in a, in a matter of years in some ways did, was that more helpful because you had sort of seen that roller coaster journey or in some ways was it more harmful because a lot of things were done behind the scenes and <clears throat> as an employee you didn't know like again someone solved this and the taxes and someone else did that and, and you weren't aware of that like so in some ways did it give you a false sense of of growth or, or ease or in other ways did it really help because you saw all the ways things can go wrong or, or what goes right like I guess on net was it sort of helpful or, or harmful to have that early growth and early success before starting out on your own yeah I think it was definitely helpful um you know I'd been through just things as simple as like setting values setting mantras setting visions for the company that's something that in my first company we'd gone through those sorts of processes um we'd managed you know, these periods of growth that led to like quite constant and consistent structural change. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're like often changing team dynamics, often changing roles and responsibilities. Um, so that was kind of the norm for me, which probably lulled me into this concept that that's just the norm for all businesses. Mm. Um, and probably if you kind of flip side that and you look at my brother who also started the business with us, who came from a finance background and working in, you know, companies like ANZ, mm. um, you know, he brought a completely different perspective to it all. Um, yeah, look, I think that it's been a positive for me, if, if only for myself in the sense that <laughs> cha- change has been the constant of my working career since day one. Um, yeah, so I'd say net, net positive for sure. So part of it, though, was understanding that someone you hire who might have sort of been in a, a team or an organisation that's flatlined for five years, they're used to doing the same thing every day. And you say, hey, no, you know, we're changing this every month. I guess initially did you underestimate perhaps how different or shocking or, or maybe upsetting that could be to someone who hasn't come from the same background as you? Yeah, 100%. We've, we've probably had three or four people that, it's, it's been an unbelievably positive relationship with all of our staff, don't get me mm. wrong, but the way we've operated as a business just hasn't fit with what they're comfortable doing, um, whether it's through past experience or just through personality types. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really pertinent point that it, it, it doesn't work for everyone. Um, mm. And I think that 50% of it's probably past experience, but I think probably a bigger thing that influences whether people are comfortable in that constantly changing environment and operating in the grey and having like job descriptions that 30% of them are <laughs> undefined. It's just like get out of your lane, do what you need yeah. to do. Um, I think as much as it is prior work history, I think probably the bigger thing that impacts people's comfortableness with that sort of situation is personality type as well. Um so, yeah, I think there's a really distinct personality type that we know thrives well in a business like ours. Um, or we've learned thrives quite well in a business like ours and, and they're the personality types that now we're really trying to seek out as we hire. And if you had to define some of those characteristics, what would you sort of say from maybe a personality sort of point of view that you're filtering for mindset, personality um, yeah, like, I mean, from a mindset standpoint, that's an easy one. We say this probably 50 times a day. Um, <laughs> like a growth mindset is a non-negotiable mm-hmm. for us. So mm-hmm. having a mindset that um, even if you can't, if you don't know how to do something, you will be able to learn and you will know how to do something in the future. Um, 
you know, for the first two quarters that all of our staff are on board, part of their quarterly goals is just pushing them into a state of growth mindset. Um, and we talk about it as a management team, if not weekly, bi-weekly, where everyone is on a scale in terms of, you know, are they in a growth or a fixed mindset? Mm-hmm. Um so people who are really open to learning, open to changing, um, who kind of look at talent as like irrelevant. Um, so, you know, we often, you know, it's not a weakness, it's a development area. Like that sort of language is something mm. that we, we really push and we really champion. Um, I mean, yeah, look, if you're in a growth mindset, you're the right type of person for us. Um, it, it, the rest of it, we actually like it being really diverse. Um but the non-negotiable and the one non-negotiable is being in that growth mindset for sure. And how would you, like, I guess if you ask a lot of people, not many people would want to say, no, I don't have a growth mindset. So a lot of people, I think, think it's one of those, I guess, positive uh, slanted characteristics. So how do you filter between someone you know, who's looking for a job who maybe thinks, oh, of course I'm about growth, I want to grow. Um, or again, maybe this is a growth from what I was doing before, but how will that person still have that mindset in three months? Like you said, maybe that job description flipped on its head. Maybe they're working in a new team, new client, and then you're really sort of tested. Have you found a, a certain aspect or, again, you sort of go back through their experiences to see, well, how much was growth versus you just sort of saying growth, but you haven't actually pushed yourself or you haven't uh, stretched out of your comfort zone? Uh, yeah, good question. I mean, our interview process is um, is is not unique so a couple of stages one of them's cultural fit one of them's more technically focused um we probably dial up the cultural fit thing and are a little bit more strict i suppose on enforcing the fact that they're the right personality type as opposed to just having a skill set that's right Mm -hmm. um but yeah in terms of like how we get to the answer on whether or not i'm probably not like we call lisa the jedi master (laughs) because she sits in these interviews and um you know by the end of it the, the person interviewing is like pouring their heart and soul out. And, you know, I, think, I think at one point, um, and this is going to sound bad, but she was interviewing someone and they actually started like crying because they were reflecting so much on like mm. their life and stuff. And we're like, oh, wow. that's, that's too much, Liz. Um, <laughs> but no, nah, look, uh, yeah, she's got her ways. Um, yeah. We throw curveball questions out like any other business um, mm. and see how people go. One of the, I mean, one of the easier ways of checking if people are in a growth mindset is delivering them feedback on the spot. Mm. And seeing how they take it, because mm. um, people who are generally defensive with feedback are generally in a fixed mindset. Mm. Um, so that's probably one of the easier ways that we kind of get a litmus test on where people are at. Excellent. And so I noticed on your website you have a job vacancy for a data and analytics lead, which again, in some ways, is sort of fits in with your business. Otherwise, I guess it's sort of hiring ahead for compared to a lot of other organisations. I imagine your scale and. A lot of companies now, if anything, have too much data, you know, too many sources of data, too many inputs, and they don't actually know where to start because they keep hearing data, 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 but they don't actually know, yeah, we've got it all. We've got clicks and this and views and usage and logins or, again, a sort of offline metrics that they can capture. But so how do you help your clients sort of filter through a, maybe a surplus of data and actually interpret that into actionable sort of insights? Yeah, we, I mean, we, we work in media and advertising so we're really good at crunching the numbers on what's being delivered um, and and understanding media metrics and how they ladder up into real business success Um, where we're looking to kind of branch out into with that that role um, is being able to work with our clients to help them understand their first party data a lot better Mm -hmm. Um, you know for us 
or, or the way that we would add value most is um, we can start leveraging that first-party data the clients sit on, so things like customer lists, things like an understanding of who's purchasing their products to really feed back into what we're doing on the media buy side. Um, so we're lucky that definitely the good guys, for example, um, have an unbelievable idea of who buys from the good guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're really blessed that as an internal function, they've got the ability to tell us exactly who we need to reach. Mm-hmm. They have the ability to share with us just genuinely first-party data that we can activate directly against through some of our buying platforms. Um, but we're really consciously aware that that's not something that all clients have. Mm-hmm. Um which is really the driving force behind why we want to be able to offer that service because it just allows us to do better work when we do have that availability of data. Um, so we just want to be able to bring that to clients, I suppose. Yeah, so you've sort of got the end goal, kind of the best state, having a client who has that, but then like you said, you want to be able to offer that and I guess sort of say here's where we can take you to at this level of clarity for other clients and that's what, again, you're offering sort of as a service, I suppose. Yeah, hundred percent, and it, like that's our growth plan. Like we mm-hmm. we build out services and products that will allow us to do a better job for our existing clients. Um, so, for example, for Morris Blackburn, us hiring that role would allow us to do a way better job for them because it's not mm-hmm. something that they've historically really focused on. Um, that's kind of why we're keen to do it. And then, you know, theory would be that in the future there'll be other clients that also have that need. Yeah, no, absolutely, and, and so. What trends do you see, again, zooming out a little bit from media, marketing, your specific business, what what trends do you see in entrepreneurship in Australia? What are a lot of Australian entrepreneurs, businesses, I imagine you, you know, at different points come across other people, um, you know, running businesses. What are they sort of doing well, again, in the media world or even beyond outside other industries, if you keep an eye on those two from the client side? And, and what maybe are they sort of not doing as well as entrepreneurs in other countries that you've observed? Yeah, look, this this was the question I think that I spent the most time looking at. We um the best way to describe my relationship with the word entrepreneur is to probably explain Lisa, who is this talent development lead, people and culture lead that we've got internally, the way that she balks when I say, You work in HR, yeah? Uh, <laughs> and it it breaks her heart. Um same way my brother, when he, he you know, he did finance, he worked at the bank, and I'm like, Mate, you can do all the invoicing here. And he's like, mate, I'm not a bookkeeper. Like, <laughs> uh, it's probably me and the other two founders' relationship with the word entrepreneur is similar. Mm. Um, I'm sure that in a lot of people it strikes, you know, really positive associations. For us, you know, this concept of hustle, this concept of like, I don't know, everything that like the Gary V's of the world, for example, represent, um, we kind of rebel against it. We are trying to position ourselves as more of an established business as quickly as we can because um, we want to do really high-quality professional work and kind of shy away from that Silicon Valley, like, fucking fly by the seat of your pants type <laughs> mentality. Um, so we've done a good job of or, or a bad job of embracing the entrepreneurship title um, and the, you know, there's vast resources available in Australia for entrepreneurs and there's clubs and there's groups of people who catch up and talk about all the challenges that they face. For good or for bad, it's not something that we've been terribly involved in. Um, I think that you would learn a lot. I think that we would have had less challenges if we did. Um, but just from a personality standpoint, it's probably probably not us. Um, 
So do you so, think it's sort of like the media almost caricature of, you know, the Instagram influencer, again, like you said, hustling, running around, going to entrepreneur meetups, startup events, and, and that's kind of, I guess, in some ways, like you said, that you don't like to be, if someone says, oh, you're an entrepreneur, again, that's why you sort of push back because you don't see yourself running around and, and doing videos, you see yourself, you know, as a managing director of a multi-million dollar business and, you know, in a professional sort of structured organization with talent development and all these things. And you sort of, I guess, associate that kind of, um, again, media, character, popular culture sort of version um, sort of is that that disconnect even i guess that silicon valley hbo type i don't know if you've watched that but you know that, that's that. sort of worst uh, <laughs> stereotype which you know that show i think is very poignant in a lot of ways of, of sort of um mocking you know i guess the again all the caricatures and, and some are real and some companies again follow it without critically examining it and, and just sort of again perpetuate all of these sort of stereotypes and that's where you're trying to say no they're over here i'm sort of over here and and to your clients and I guess to your staff and to your, your your friends and other people sort of making that distinction. Yeah, I think that there's just, and it is like a media-driven caricature, but it is kind of a reality as well because mm. when I say that I haven't actually been to any of these meetups, and I've been around a few of the circles. We've, um, you know, we were lucky enough to win a couple of awards last year and you go to some of these award ceremonies and it's, um, you know, the, the reality of the entrepreneurial space is that, and general, probably the reality of a lot of people who get into starting a business is that um, you have to have an element of like ego, I suppose, to go out and say, I can do this better than what mm. another company's already doing it. Um, and that ego can be, you know, manifest in a lot of different ways, I think. Um, but one of the most common ways that it can manifest is just, uh, you know, as hyper extroverts, um, which is just, again, polar opposite, I think, to what me and you know, my brother and my business partner um, kind of represent. Um, we we don't take that image to market. It's probably not the mm. image we want half them to have. Um, yeah, look, we we thought we could offer a good service, so we started a business. Um, as I said, it was a business that we managed to start intentionally but through, you know, a well-planned and relatively low-risk methods. Um and it's been really successful because we've managed to surround ourselves with really good people. Um, yeah. and, and so I guess examining, again, this uh, character, which caricature, which, again, like all have some truth in it, otherwise people wouldn't relate to it, right, or wouldn't laugh about it. Um, do you think overall, I mean, that's attracting, again, top of the funnel, more people into starting a business, that's a good thing? Do you think it's, again, creating a false narrative, it's sort of a bad thing and it's always hard to, to you know, net-net say, what these are but again do you think maybe it pushes some people away or again it, it steers some people in the wrong direction because they're they're running around hustling and doing the wrong actions versus again focusing on, on the business and revenues and clients and professionalism and things like that i think it's for me it's a little bit of like yin yang sort of duality mm. i think that for certain personalities that would probably give them the push that they need to go out and start a business and i'm look i'm all for people going out and starting businesses definitely mm. don't get me wrong um and so I think that, you know, those type A personalities, it probably reaffirms with them that starting a business is something that they'd be able to do and, and so they get out there and can do it. I think probably where it does a bit of a disservice is for those other personality types that might be a little bit more introverted, might be a little bit more, um, you know, might be unbelievable at their job, but just might not share those characteristics and they might not be as comfortable becoming an entrepreneur because they don't fit the mould. 
Um, and they and think, oh, if it's about, you know, 10 Snapchat videos a day and this and that and posting, well, that's not me. I don't want to do that. I just want to, you know, master my craft and deliver a great service. And, and you think they don't sort of feel that they would fit in. in the- 100%. Like, we're going through at the moment, to be honest. Like, we re- we've relied on personal relationships to date to get us through the door. And, you know, start of this year, we've rebranded Half Dome into what it is today. Um, your website, your color palette, your brand positioning, everything. Um, and we're at the really front end of starting to do more PR type things, um, which is, you know, designed to get Half Dome's name out there so that leads start coming in from people we don't mm. necessarily know in a personal basis. As part of doing that, you know, we're starting to have to do, be a lot more outgoing, I suppose, as a business. Mm. Um, so we're kind of grappling with that and how we can do that in a way that's still true to our values that we hold sort of dear. Um, so, look, it's going to be an interesting process the next six months as we start to really ramp up in that space. But um, and, and do you yeah, have it's... something that you want to do, again, which you think sort of positions you well and then things like, well, we're never going to do this. We never want to be the one, again, sort of doing, again, maybe some stereotypical sort of thing that a lot of people are doing that you really leaves a bad taste in your mouth, not because it's sort of unethical but just, you know, cringy. And then kind of something, how do you get your name out there, be more extroverted, personal brand, whatever other trigger words you want to use, um, and sort of, again, but build a brand and a profile and, and yourselves as successful, fast-growth business owners who help, you know, um, ambitious sort of data-led business clients um, while not falling into these sort of stereotypes and, and almost um, bad aspects that you see, like I said, a bit more cringy and, and um, you know, not representative of who you are and what you're selling. Yeah, I think I think where we're heading and where we'll land is that we're super proud of the identity half dome has and we're super proud of the way that we engage with clients and you know the way we treat our people in an industry that's notoriously bad at treating its people. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that where we'll land is, which is contrary to a lot of small businesses, is instead of pushing PR around individuals and people and me or Tom or Will, um, founders' stories, the rest of it, we're really comfortable pushing Half Dome as a brand um, mm-hmm. and really comfortable pushing what it represents because um, we've put a hell of a lot of work into building out what it does represent. Um, and, so and I think what the are web- some of those values? You mentioned sort of mission statement values earlier on when you were sort of establishing and that was an important thing for you. What are some of those, if you could sort of touch on those briefly? Yeah, easy. Well, we've got um, four core values that are kind of plastered on our walls and um, everything we do from a people standpoint kind of ladders up into them. Um, and the four of them are, well, one of them's a mindset, which is being constantly curious, so asking mm-hmm. questions. Um, you know, we, we call it chase the why, like don't just do, like understand why you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them's blow things up. So kind of mm-hmm. be a little bit irreverent in the way that you deal with clients, be willing to challenge, be willing to change the way things have been done in the past. Um, and as much internally as well, like we're small enough that we can completely change the way we go about things tomorrow if there's a better way of doing it. Um, so we really encourage that behaviour. Uh, love Mondays. So, um, you know, I was, we, we do a bit of work with Unlimited, which is a charity that works pretty pretty heavily in the media space. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's something like 75% of people who work in advertising have at some point been depressed because of work. Mm. Um, so we want to create an environment and a culture around people that, allows us to be a shining light in what is a really high-pressure industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as time goes on, I think that whilst we do unbelievable work, the work we are going to be and we are doing in the people space is going to outshine anything we do as a business elsewhere. Um, 
so Love Mondays is 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 a big one. Um, and then the last one is what is the last one? Oh, stay classy, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is just about treating people with respect. To be honest, mm. um, you know, culturing a personal brand and a brand as a business that um, is is you know one that does the right thing um, wherever possible. Yeah, that sounds really good. And, and so. I, I guess um, circling back to that point about sort of, I guess, entrepreneurship, um, what would you say to, you know, 18 or 20-year-old who, who, again, maybe watches online, like you said, sort of the Gary V stuff, other startup events, again, and, and they're trying to sort of filter through what's the truth, what what's sort of fiction, what's, again, parody, what's um, sort of, uh, you know, external-facing but not internal-facing sort of reality. What advice would you give that 18 to 20-year-old, again, who maybe wants to work in a fast-growth business, wants to start a business in terms of, again, looking back and things you, you know, didn't know when you were starting and just out there applying, throwing applications into the wind and, and hoping for the best, um, sort of knowing what you know now about, you know, working a fast-growth company or starting a company? Uh, if I mean, if I was 18 or 20, I would say go and have fun. <laughs> You've got so much time to um, tie yourself to a job that's going to be long hours. Don't get it's going to be super rewarding. But, um, you know, if you start a business at the age of 18, you're likely going to be, if it's successful, you're likely going to be working in it for the next 20 years. Mm. Just start it when you're 25. Spend the extra mm. five years figuring out what you actually want to do um, and enjoying yourself a little bit because uh, there is enough time to start a business in the future. Um, and it's not like panic stations. It has to happen right now. Um, yeah, look, I I could think of nothing worse than starting a business when I was 18. Mm. <laughs> I would have done a terrible job. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, look, I'd, I'd spend a bit longer figuring out what you want to do um, because the reality of starting a business is really, you know, rewarding but long hours. Um mm-hmm. You know, for me, I've got a wife and, and child now and you inevitably commit a lot of time to work and a lot of time to family. Um, so you and like spend those early 20s doing what people in their early 20s should be doing, which is hanging out with your mates and enjoying yourself um, because, yeah, you're signing up to, you know, a way of living that's probably different to that when you do start a business, mm-hmm. um, which is equally rewarding, just different. Um, and there's so much time to do it in the future. Yeah, and so you mentioned yourself taking a couple of months sort of backpacking, you know, living out of a van. Were there some kind of key moments that that helped you with? Again, were you two sort of work-focused, future-focused that helped you sort of mellow? Was it just, again, a, a like last hurrah because, you know, you didn't think in the future you'd be able to take months off and sort of backpack or was there a real sort uh, of lesson that, that or, again, was it just sort of wild fun or were there some sort of insights and lessons looking back that maybe... Um, you know, apart from being a great time that really stuck with you? Look, I uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that Steve Jobs address. He's just done at like Stanford. Yeah, it's one of his yeah. like key, keynote speeches. But I'm a pretty big believer in this concept of like uh, like experience. Like everything happens for a matter as wanky as it sounds. Um, like, you know, you look back and just like individual experiences that, happen for unplanned reasons and the example mm. steve jobs give is you know he'd drop into a class at stanford just because he was like bugger it like it seems interesting and it was like a calligraphy class mm-hmm. um and you know fast forward 15 years completely randomly later and he's launching mac and you know what's probably their biggest point of difference to this day is this design element and one of the mm. biggest things that drove that in the early days was having unbelievable fonts 
on the Mac that Windows just didn't have. Um, and that was driven, he says, by you know his experience that he just randomly was dropping into these calligraphy classes. Um, for me, like you can't plan at all. Like there's mm. no there's no like straight line through to starting a business success, like what you're going to be doing at that business. And so there's a lot of these like touch points that are completely random, completely you know seem to make no sense or might be irrelevant at the time. Whether it's traveling, whether it's like university courses that seem like it's not going to be what you're doing in the future um that you know fast forward 10 years and you can just kind of like ah i was exposed to that back here or like mm. you know that's super relevant now or i met someone traveling who gone on to work with um mm. you know that's that's an example that's happened to me is on that america trip mm-hmm. um you know meeting someone hanging out with them for a few days and then fast forward 10 years and we work with them in a business scenario mm. and do work like do work with them and they gave us some business um so you know it's yeah look i wouldn't plan at all yeah just sort of being open to chance and experience and a bit of luck and randomness um yeah excellent and so just to finish up looking forward to the future um at a high level vision strategy like you said people culture goals what does the next five to ten years look like for half Dome? Yeah, great question. We talk about this a fair bit. We have a really clear idea of kind of the products that we want to launch and what we need to launch in order to, um, I suppose, add more value to the businesses we're targeting, um, which are those enterprise-level businesses in Australia. Um, So we'll definitely be growing out what we do from a product standpoint. Um, But I think that, and the way I put it is, regardless of what we're doing in terms of like what we actually do, like, you know, we're developing a really half-dome way of doing things, um, which, again, is founded in those four principles and really people-focused internally, um, which I think is going to be the thing that, one, differentiates us long-term, um, but, two, really drives, you know, the next five or ten years of growth for us. Um, so, yeah, look, regardless of what we do, I just can't wait to continue developing how we deal with people, innovating the way that, you know, we allow people to come to work, that we allow them to work. Um mm-hmm that we manage to get the best out of them Um, because early signs show that a bigger focus there drives better outcomes than any, you know, skill that individuals might bring to a business um, that are on the way in. Yeah, and does Half Dome, I mean, as a name, have a certain significance or reason you sort of picked it? Because you mentioned sort of the brand and building that. Is that... Sort of a, I was terrified you were going to ask this question. I was <laughs> terrified. Um, yeah, look, when we were travelling that that infamous trip at the mm. time, I was doing this engineering degree, commerce degree. Harmsy was in a just a normal commerce degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my brother was uh, literally working at a bank and mm-hmm. we were sitting in – it was the middle of winter, mind you, and mm-hmm. I don't know why we thought this was a good idea, but we drove to Yosemite National Park and we were mm-hmm. sort of posted up might have had a few beers um, and sort of sitting under Half Dome, the rock face in Yosemite, mm-hmm. having heart-to-hearts as you do after too many drinks and you're the only people camping in Yosemite. Um, and we we're like, yeah, let's start a business together one day. Um, mm. And it was kind of never planned on being our long-term name, but we <laughs> needed something to trade under day one and we're like, bugger it, let's just do that. And it kind of stuck. <laughs> Yeah, no, excellent, excellent. Um, and do you have any final words, thoughts, messages for the audience? Uh, I, I, I don't. I think that, you know, um, 
I just say I don't actually know who listens to this podcast. Is it young people? Is it older people? Is it entrepreneurs? Yeah. Um, it's hard to get the exact analytics and detail. It is people all over the world, primarily in Australia. I think it's a lot of people interested in sort of um, work and careers, both business, but also the stories sort of behind the people. Um, but yeah, I'd say a fairly young professional sort of audience in both ambitious careers slash, you know, freelance, self-employment, entrepreneurship as well. Yeah, cool. I think that, like, I hope that you've picked up that there's a massive people focus at, at mm. Halftime. And one, one of the sort of things that we often say, which I think rings true, that I'd encourage people to think about in their business dealings is, you know, we like to be hard on the work, but soft on the people. Mm. Um which is something that resonates with me in terms of a way of approaching professional life. Um, so, yeah, I'd probably, probably leave them with that one. Excellent. That's a really great quote. Thanks so much, Joe. Thank you no for worries, listening to the Future much. of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email Derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.